Welcome to Alaska Black Caucus. Authentic, bold, committed. Good evening. I am Teresa Bevel, a member of the Alaska Black Caucus, serving on the Health Committee, an organization that champions the lives of Black people in the areas of health, economics, justice, and education. Thank you for joining us for tonight's community conversation, fighting COVID-19 together with facts. Please remember this conversation is being recorded for rebroadcast. So please keep yourselves on mute. If you have any questions, be sure to put them in the chat box and we will try our best to get to them. Please welcome tonight's moderator, Eric Gelly, who will introduce our panelists. Thank you. Thank you, Teresa. Welcome everyone. I'm Eric Gurley, a member of the Alaska Black Caucus Health Committee. Today's community conversation will cover two topics that are complex. Some of you may have heard of the terms trauma-informed care and mental health. The external challenge of COVID-19 impacts us all and has unveiled further challenges in our life. We understand the topics today may be triggering. Please take care and be kind as we attempt to take this hour to provide plain spoken language to meet our goal to provide understanding, recognition, and resources for all our Alaskan communities. Next, it's my pleasure to introduce our two panelists for the evening. First, I want to welcome Tandra M. Rutledge. Everyone, Tandra is a mental health advocate, consultant, and suicide prevention educator. She is the director of Healthcare Systems Initiative for Project 2025, a national initiative of the American Foundation for suicide prevention aimed at reducing the annual suicide rate in the United States by 20% by 2025. With over 25 years of clinical, healthcare, and executive leadership experience, Tanja is driven to dismantle stigma and cultivate resilience through a social justice and racial equity framework. A highly regarded speaker and trusted subject matter expert, Tanja fosters deep, honest connections with diverse audiences that heal, inspire, and transform. Next, I'd like to introduce Laurencia Reynolds, or Ronnie. Ronnie is a licensed professional counselor slash supervisor and holds a chemical dependent certification one. Ronnie is working in group practice, providing outpatient therapy and clinical contract work for a mental health slash developmental disabilities organization. Ronnie's past experiences include 30 plus years in the nonprofit sector, performing various roles in direct services and management within community health agencies. My faith and spirituality are very important and instrumental in allowing me to do the work to help others. I believe there's nothing like doing work you are passionate about. It makes it enjoyable and more than just a job. For context, we're talking a bit about COVID-19, trauma-informed care, and mental health, all as they impact people of color in the state of Alaska. Alaska as a whole at this point in time has had over 120,000 cases of positive COVID and 574 Alaskans have died. We're gonna reach out today and we're gonna start with a short video on the subject of trauma-informed care. You know the old saying, don't judge a book by its cover? Well, the same is true when you assess a patient. Hi, I'm Dr. Cruz. Early in my career, I noticed a pattern with some of my patients. 
They often had multiple health issues, were uneasy during office visits, and frequently visited the emergency department. But worst of all, they never got better, despite multiple visits. Then I realized something. From an early age, many of my patients were exposed to trauma and adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. This includes emotional, sexual, or physical abuse, violence, neglect, discrimination, poverty, and other adverse events. ACEs are more common in the U.S. than you'd think. In fact, 60% of U.S. adults have one ACE, 25% have three or more ACEs, and 16% have four or more. ACEs occur in all socioeconomic groups, but are more common in low-income and minority populations. For young children, repeated exposure to trauma can impact brain development and literally rewire the brain's response to stress. So as they grow up, many struggle with issues related to emotional regulation, like depression, anxiety, or substance use disorders. Trauma survivors are also more often at risk for chronic diseases, behavioral health problems, and even suicide. Knowing all this, I began to rethink my approach to care. Instead of asking patients, what's wrong with you? I ask, what happened to you? Recognizing that life experiences are often a root cause of poor health is integral to improving patient care. Trauma-informed care has helped me take these experiences into account, providing greater insight into my patients' needs and how to address them. Here are five key ways that healthcare organizations can gradually integrate trauma-informed care into their practices to help patients and staff. First, build awareness and generate buy-in. Involve both staff and patients in adopting a trauma-informed approach. Second, invest in a trauma-informed workforce. Hire staff that embrace trauma-informed care and provide training not only for clinical staff, but also for non-clinical employees like front desk workers or security guards who are often the face of your organization. Next, create an environment that is safe and welcoming for patients and staff. Engage patients in meaningful ways. Ask how they feel and listen. You can also build trust by involving them in their own treatment planning. Finally, identify and treat trauma. Consider a screening approach that works for your patients and ensure that treatments and referral sources are available. These changes take time, but each step improves our ability to connect with and care for patients. Today, our patients appreciate the changes we've made. Plus, our staff is more in tune with patients, so work is less stressful and more rewarding. Trauma-informed care. It can truly transform the caregiving experience from being treaters to being healers. You heard five different elements introduced in this video, but I wanted to go to our panelists and take some time to discuss trauma-informed care. Please relate it, if you can, to how you've seen the impact of COVID involved and uh, sharing the experiences you may have. Let's start first with Kendra. Thank you, Eric, and thank you all for joining us this evening. Well, there's a lot to unpack, right, um, from this video as we were, we were preparing for this conversation. You know, trauma-informed care changes your framework, you know, um, from what's wrong with you to what's happened to you. One of the things 
in the animation that stood out to me that the video doesn't account for is the importance of us, the importance that we need to place on health disparities and inequities and structural racism in healthcare. So if you listen to the video, you hear um, the provider talk, you know, saying that they're going to ask their patient, you know, what's happened to you and taking all of that information into account is so very important. But we have to also move beyond trauma-informed care to make sure that we're providing care that is based in anti-racism because that is another component. You know, um, it's important to understand how healthcare, how our healthcare system, the behavioral health system, the medical health system has impacted and created and caused, contributed to trauma that many people experience, especially people of color when they're seeking help. So that's one of the things that I wanted to highlight from the video, Eric. I know it didn't exactly get to your question and I know we'll continue to talk about that, but I wanted to highlight that there is both a macro level that we need to look at these issues and a micro level. You know, there are things that we need healing from and that we're gonna talk about coping skills, but there are also things that we need to hold our systems of care accountable for. Thank you. Ronnie, what is trauma? Well, thanks. Thanks um, everyone for joining us. And thanks Eric for asking that question because you know, I was sitting here thinking, and as we have talked and preparing for tonight, um, I've done training on trauma in the past, and I know that there's lots of training and research in there, but you know, during COVID, it made me look at trauma in a different light, especially after talking with some of my patients. It really got me to thinking for myself as we were looking at the video and, and talking before about the ACEs study. You know, there's a lot, as Tandra said, to unpack there. And the ACEs study, some may know it, some may not. But again, trauma is one of those things that is not a respectful person. And it comes in all shapes and sizes. And again, some of us may think of trauma as this, you know, big dramatic event. You know, we've heard about war veterans and PTSD and, you know, plane crashes and surviving train wrecks and things like that. But trauma finds us in all different areas of our life. And, you know, it's the small things, you know, as we talk about COVID, it was one thing for the disease itself or the infection and, you know, dealing with that. And then, you know, there was the fact of schools closing down, jobs being lost, families being, you know, disconnected, um, not being able to connect with loved ones. All of those things are traumatic in and of themselves. So I, for me, when we talk about this today, helping us to realize when we talk about trauma-informed care is that we can kind of um, look at it from all angles and not um, discriminate, if you will, against the big things that people see as trauma and the small things that we see. Um, it was traumatic for me uh, not to be able to sit across from my patients and have uh, a therapy session. It was traumatic for me to not to have my daughter um, to go back to school. You go on spring break and a year and a half later, you're, you know, you're thinking, okay, what next? You know, so one degree you know, for me may be a big thing. And for somebody else, it may be something else. So just being open to what trauma is as we continue to talk tonight. Thank you. There's the term generational trauma. Tandra, can you speak to that? Yeah, we, you know, we've talked a lot about that as we were preparing for our conversation. And, you know, when we look at trauma, you know, defining trauma as, you know, 
Ronnie talked about, you know, when people think of big traumas, I don't want to, and I don't want to use big traumas and little trauma, right? Because, you know, what's traumatic for me may not be traumatic for someone else. Um, but what we know about trauma is that it can, um, there are different types of it and it can be transmitted across generations. There's historical trauma, there's personal trauma, there's interpersonal trauma, there's racial trauma. So there are different types of, um, of trauma that we may experience. And it's not one or the other. And for many of us, it's cumulative. You know, it, it's cumulative. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think when we were preparing for this, I shared with you the example of maybe a year and a half ago or so, and I was sitting in the living room and I was watching the news and um, I had a, a traumatic response to the news. I had a physical reaction to what I was watching with all of the images. Um, this was shortly after the George Floyd murder and we were in COVID and I, I, I noticed um, that my heart started racing and my hands you know, became clammy and I got really anxious and I noticed that was happening. That was a traumatic experience. It was triggering things from the past in me, right? And I recognized, um, I recognized that. And so it's important for us to understand sometimes we're triggered by things that may have happened to us in the past individually, but sometimes we're triggered by things that happen to groups of people that we belong to. So as a group, as a culture, we share certain um, things that have happened and certain traumas and things that have happened in the past, you know, and those impact us. Um, there's a such thing as vicarious trauma. It doesn't have to happen to me it happened to someone else. I've endured vicarious trauma by hearing of the traumatic experiences that my family members, the elders in my family have experienced. I didn't directly experience them, but they are traumatic for me and they come up for me in different places in my life. And I, and I think about where is that coming from? Oh, you know, my great, great grandfather endured this. And this is a story that's been passed. This is an experience and it's trauma. So when you experience trauma, it doesn't have to be something that you directly experience. Um, and so um, I think that kind of might uh, address your question, Eric, in terms of the generational trauma, things that are passed down and can be passed down to us as um, in, within our families, as a as well as within our cultures. And it's important for us to understand the, the importance of racial trauma. I saw someone put in the chat that the ACEs didn't um, account for <laughs> racial violence is not addressed. And very honestly, racial trauma is not even addressed in, in, in our healthcare system or in our mental healthcare system as well. And we know that um, racism and discrimination and experiences of oppression can be in our traumatic experiences that affect us mentally and also affect us because that stress lives in our bodies and it affects us physically. And so it's, these are things that we have to begin to talk about and understand the connection between those traumas that we experience and our mental health and our physical health. And Ronnie, one last 
question on trauma before we move a little to mental health. Can you talk a little bit about loss and loss that's occurred during COVID-19? You touched some on this, uh, loss of identity, roles, family, friends, grief, loss. Um, and we have a slide, if we can get that slide popped up for, for just a bit while Ronnie's answering. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, the idea of, of loss, um, again, comes in, in various um, ways. And again, there, there is loss that we've experienced. And, and as we're talking about this, if you will, under the umbrella of COVID, and again, um, you know, it, it's apparent to see, as Eric mentioned, the numbers, the amount of deaths that we've had due to COVID. But there has been so many things that we have lost or that has been lost, um, you know, our sense of identity, um, you know, the, the roles that we were so accustomed to and are familiar with within our jobs, even within our homes, um, within our families, you know, the role we played, those all change um, when, when the pandemic hit. Um, we had to learn to, to take on different roles and responsibilities. Uh, we had to learn to do things differently. So we had people who, you know, were losing loved ones, who were losing jobs, who were losing a sense of identity. Um, who was losing their place in society, if you will. Um, you know, even you know, with sports, those who are in sports, our faith communities, all of those things, and that impacted our mental health um, in a lot of different ways. And, and we all experience um, grief and loss in different ways. And so when we just think of, you know, the pandemic, some might, you know, initially, or, you know, what might first come to hand is, you know, how many people we have um, lost, you know, who have died. Um, yes, that's, that's, that's major. But again, we also have to take into account all of the other losses. And for me, being in, in um, group practice and sitting across from people every day, uh, when I look at them and when I talk to them, I have to see them in a different light. And I can't just say, oh, they're dealing with COVID. Um, but I have to, you know, remember as this, you know, the slide shows here, that grief looks different uh, for everyone. And you know what people have lost um, to really take that into consideration as I'm um, providing services for someone, as I'm trying to be a, a support or help. Um, and even for myself, um, when I'm sharing with others or when I'm seeking services or support, um, how I express myself not feeling like I have to you know, put loss in a, in a certain category or in a certain way. Um, again, going back to trauma-informed care, uh, we have a responsibility to, to help to create the system that we want. And part of that is being open and honest and telling um, those who may not be aware what loss is for us, what grief looks like for us, helping them understand what my trauma is and it may not be what they may see it as and so again um all of this in my mind is, is a way for me to help to create the system that i think that we're talking about that's what's missing thank you, thank you. transitioning for our dialogue to mental health this past week has been national mental illness awareness week october 3rd through the 9th of 2021 Today, October 10th, is World Mental Health Day. The theme is mental health is an unequal world. I wanted us to explore mental health, 
helping understand the mental health condition. Um, and then if you could contrast that against chronically mentally ill. Um, and what I'm hoping to gain is an understanding of how people may have been different or become different due to COVID and the activities therein, as opposed to some people hearing through media and other sources, examples of uh, behaviors related to chronically mentally ill or other uh, behaviors that, that may not provide the same picture, the equitable picture. You, 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 so, so let's, um, from what I understand, you know, mental health impacts us all. So, so let's have that discussion. Tandra, can you, can you help us understand what is mental health? Thank you, Eric. I love talking about mental health. We had a, um, a slide up there a moment ago um, with a brain and it had what mental health is, what mental health is not. And mental health, um, it's important to understand that mental health has to do with how we think, mm -hmm. how we feel and what we do, right? It has to do with our emotions, our cognitions, our, 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 our our um, psychological makeup, our social well-being. It has to do with how we interact with one another, how we show up for school, how we show up for work, how we navigate relationships and solve problems. And so it's really important for us to understand that that's mental health and that we all have mental health just like we have physical health. And mental health is equally as important as our physical health. One of the things that some, one of the things that I love talking, why I love talking about mental health is because I want us to get the facts right, right? Oftentimes when we're having discussions about mental health, it's always something negative. And that's not what mental health is, right? We all have mental health. It's on a continuum. We have good mental health days. We have not so good mental health days, right? Again, it has to do with how we think, how we feel, and how we behave. And there are lots of things that impact that on a daily basis for everyone. And throughout COVID, we all probably can attest to the fact that we haven't been okay. And that's okay that we haven't been okay, right? And creating a safe space for us to say to one another, um, to our friends, but also as helping professionals to be able to say when we're not okay. And so, it's important for us to understand and separate fact from fiction. It's also important for us to um, highlight the, the role or the impact that stigma plays, right? Our negative perceptions about mental health, how stigma plays in terms of, um, the role stigma plays in terms of people's willingness to talk about mental health. So if I'm willing to stand up and talk about my mental health, hopefully that encourages other people to want to talk about their mental health. So we have to create safe spaces so people can have, so that we can have conversations about mental health. Now, I know Eric, part of your question was that distinction, but I want to have Ronnie um, talk about that because I think she has a very good way of helping us understand that distinction between, you know, um, mental health and well being, right? What we're talking about. And when somebody might need some professional support or have a mental health condition or disorder. So I'm going to pass it over to Ronnie for that um, explanation. 
Yes. Thanks, Tandra. And I'll just jump right into that because again, I like Tandra when you talk mental health. Um, I, I like talking about it because I, I learned that what that meant um, to me and that it was different than a mental illness. And based on my experience and um, as Eric said in my bio, um, have, have worked in, in the field in some capacity for almost 35 years now. And most of that time has been spent working with folks who experience chronic mental illness and developmental disabilities. And so I, I wanna make that distinction today because as again, as I'm trying to keep this under that in the context of COVID, if you will, for me during COVID, it was made apparent to me just how relevant or how prevalent mental health is and how we, especially African-Americans tend to um, avoid taking care of our mental health. And for me, I had the experience to see COVID really show that for us um, because we, we experienced life really different during COVID. And so again, really having to embrace the idea of my mental health in comparison to my physical health. Um, and again, the unfortunate part of that is for African-Americans, we sometimes um, tend to neglect both of them, our physical health as well as our mental health. But for, for me, I think what I want to say today is that there is a difference, um, again, between your mental health and having a mental illness. And for, from my experience, the work I've done in the past with chronic mental illness consisted of someone who actually had a mental illness, meaning they had a mental health diagnosis. And typically that was a chronic disease of schizophrenia, bipolar, um, personality disorders. And again, I don't say that to, to discriminate or um, to put that in a bad light because again, with the right help and treatment, that too can be managed just like our mental health can be. But our mental health is our day-to-day -day functioning. And it's when those things get in the way of us being able to function in our daily roles of parent, caregiver, um, spouse, you know, employee, coworker, church member, whatever it is, when our mental well-being, when we neglect to take care of our emotional self, um, and then we can't function in our daily roles, then we, we need to really look at, okay, what do I need so that I can be mentally well? And COVID for me made me realize I tend to neglect that and we need to focus on that. And so if we as mental health providers are more open and honest about our own mental health and that we all need at some time some support, and that may look different for all of us. Sometimes that support is doing just what we're doing. Um, and I think Tandra and I have talked about, you know, some of the things we do, which we'll talk about a little bit later, to take care of our mental health. Um, but that's the first thing is recognizing that we all have mental health and that it's important that we make sure that mentally we are well, just like we should do physically, emotionally, spiritually. We are a whole person, so we need to make sure we address each of those different areas of our life. Thank you. Thank I you hope that hit, hit it for you, Eric. 
and well, it, for our audience. It starts to have a lot, right? I, I, I heard an example uh, related to COVID. I don't know what mental health is, but since COVID-19, I know I'm different. I'm more emotional, right? So is that a mental health condition or is that a recognition of, of, of mental health need? Yeah, and I think that's just, you know, again, good question there because I think being able to recognize that I'm not well emotionally, just like we recognize, oh, my foot hurts, my head hurts, or, you know, we, we're not feeling well physically, we, we figure out what we need to do to feel better physically. So in turn, when we recognize, wait, I'm not sure what's happening here, but something ain't right. That's my, you know, y'all gotta accept that we're ain't, something ain't right today, I'm more emotional. That means I need to check it out. I need to figure out what's going on emotionally. That's my mental health. And so I, 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 when, I think when Eric brought that to us was like, yeah, that's it right there. Somebody recognized their, their mental health is, is, is out of balance right now. I hope what COVID has done by us having these conversations, um, and I know lots of people are, lots more people are having these conversations about mental health and COVID and trauma, which is great, right? That we're talking about these things that more of us will recognize when we're not okay. Like we'll recognize when we are feeling emotional or when we're frustrated or when, we, when we're anxious and we'll identify ways that, to take care of ourselves. Because I love, Ronnie, I love your example when you were saying like, hey, when I get a headache, I, you know, I recognize that I have a headache and I may take something for the headache or when my foot hurts, I take care of that. Well, you know, when you're not feeling okay, you know, when you're emotional, when you're angry or whatever it is, when your mental health is not okay, we want people to identify those times and then um, do something about it, do something positive to take care of your mental health. And with COVID, um, you know, I've had to get creative, you know, in terms of how I do that. And Ronnie said something really important earlier. She said, you know, whatever it is, whatever you do for you, you do for you, right? And you can get inspiration from other people, but no one can really tell you what to do to take care of yourself and your mental health. There, th this leads a little bit back to the, to the trauma. If you're doing that, it, it is becoming more and more well-known about how different uh, people are treated differently when they're seeking medical or therapeutic supports. So for example, uh, Black women have a harder time of being heard. That's the language I'm going to use when going to their physicians. What experiences can you share with us that um, you may have even encountered as a provider seeking maybe your own support or resource? What, what guidance can you give others who may have been in that same position? Really, Eric? <laughs> Oh, that, you know, um, I, I can share my own example, if that would help. Yeah, yeah it, it just, you know, when you ask the question, um, you know, I got a flood of examples, honestly. I, I honestly got a flood of examples. And I thought to myself, when don't I experience it? So feel free to go ahead and share why I work with the flood of <laughs> thoughts that I have in my head. 
Well, well the, the first thing I would say is, is resources themselves are sparse when uh, a person of color is looking for a therapeutic relationship. The ability to find persons of color can, can be slim. Uh, I think in our dialogue, we even heard examples of people needing to go out of the state of Alaska um, because one, Alaska is a, a state of one degree of separation. So a lot of people know one another, but the other, even Tandra, in your example, you shared that there's not a lot of African-American resources. And I don't know that many know, but you're outside the city of Chicago, which, which had my jaw on the table because I wouldn't have thought that was a problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I shared that with you. So we know that um, our healthcare system, you know, does have, um, you know, a history of inadequate resources in general, but specifically for minoritized populations. And there are limited number of people who are um, people of color who are clinicians to support and treat individuals um, and also lack of trained individuals in cultural uh, competency and anti-racism. So it's hard. And I think what I shared was an example of seeking um, support for my son and uh, through my insurance and could not find um, anyone for him to see um, in person, a male, and I, now let me be very specific. I was looking for a black male therapist for my son, and there was no one. Um, of, there was no one within a fifty-mile radius, and so I had to go to teleservices and online services. And I remember sharing that with you, Eric, and you were like, "What? You're in Chicago? What?" So there, there is. There is that, right? <laughs> there is that challenge of, of finding someone that um, you feel comfortable with opening up and having that, um, creating that safe, uh, that safe relationship um, with. And that's a challenge. That's a challenge for lots of people. Yeah, and, and Eric, um, if I may just chime in on that, um, it's, it's very relevant to me here in Alaska, both personally and professionally. And I think I, as we were preparing and, and talking amongst herself, I'd shared um, that I had a young lady, an African-American young lady um, contact our office and um, ask specifically to see me. And, you know, just in kind of making um, the initial phone call before I actually did an intake. and. And she shared with me that she had been in therapy and therapy was working for her. She told me about some goals that she had reached and talked about how well she had connected with her therapist. And I, you know, I thought, okay, um, tell me a little bit more. What, what happened? You know, wh why are you seeking, you know, a change? And um, it was during the time when all the protesting was going on during the whole thing with um, the incident with uh, George Floyd and, you know, the trial and all of that. And she said, you know, right now, I just need someone who looks like me and who can relate to what I'm going through. And when I talk about these things that I feel like I can talk about it and you will understand. And she says, and right now, the person that I'm seeing, they're not a bad person or they're, you know, there's nothing against them. But she just felt like she needed someone 
who that she could relate to and me being one, a female and an African-American, she was comfortable that in, you know, initially I would be a little hesitant, you know, just trying to do continuity of care and, and being respectful of other clinicians. I want to, you know, make contact, let's talk about this and let's pass, you know, do a, um, a good pass off, you know, for, for a patient. And I asked her, well, can I talk with um, your current therapist? And she says, you know, I'm okay, I'm good, you know, no need to do that. This is just what I need for right now. And so um, that was just an experience for me because it really, I had to like, okay, really look at this big picture. I had to put, you know, what I would normally do day to day just and take care of business. Again, I had to look at things from a different perspective. Um, so that was just per, um, professionally. And then for me personally, you know, being um, in the field and just living life in general, stuff happens, you know? Um, and there's times when I can say personally, I thought, man, things are getting pretty tough here. I need to talk to somebody. And, and I want to address this as well, because in the chat, um, someone made mention of, you know, we, we think we got it all together. And especially as professionals, you know, I want to present a certain way. I got to keep it all together. I, you know, I'm supposed to be this. I should do this. I got to do that. Uh, but every now and then, I don't know about nobody else, but every now and then, things get to be a bit much. And I feel like, okay, I need a minute. I need somebody else to talk to. I need somebody to talk to me. Um, and I can tell you for me personally, there's been times when I thought, I don't know, I'm gonna have to go out of state to talk to somebody because one, I gotta find somebody here who I feel like I can trust. And again, those are my own issues. And as Kendra was talking about earlier, generational stuff, some of that's generational. Um, you know, and some of it is just because in Alaska, um, big place, but as Eric said, you know, when you talk about mental health and you talk about clinicians, we can, we can get real small, real quick. And so again, being the few that at least I'm aware of and knew at the time, I thought, um, no, I think I'm going to pass on that. Um, I'm going to have to look outside. And that, I, that's very unfortunate, especially being in Alaska and you don't like to fly. You figure like you got to go out just to get some help. Um, and so again, as we're talking about COVID, I think, and I may be jumping ahead, Eric, but I think for me, that's one of the things that I said has been in, um, advantageous with COVID mm -hmm. is telehealth and being able to um, access mental health without having to physically go places. For some of us, um, that might be very helpful to be able to do. Others that don't work, um, but for some people, that means I can get it, um, the mental health help that I need. Um, that's, that's a safety you know, net for some people as we talk about trauma. Um, it may be traumatizing for me to go in person to sit across from somebody or to be physically present, um, but if I can do it over Zoom or um, what are the other options people use? I don't know. I use Zoom. So I've come real close with Zoom lately. Um, but, but that can be, again, a big difference maker for folks who need some support with mental health, that I can do it um, there. So just as we're talking about limited resources, I can say I truly have been affected by that. And I'm grateful that our community here in Alaska is doing more to grow 
um, our, our own, if you will, and to um, increase the number of um, African-American mental health providers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to pause and take a moment to see if there's been any questions from our Facebook Live. Eric, I can share a couple of questions from the chat. Please. Thank you, Thea. One from Cal a bit earlier. Are there disparities in the treatment and effect of COVID-19 experiences by our inmates of color in the correctional system? What can we do about this? Good question. Panel? I'll just speak to, again, what has been my experience or what I have um, been um, in conversation with those who work in um, the correctional facility um, here in Alaska um, or having the um, experience of knowing someone who has been incarcerated during COVID. And again, um, so just know that I'm, I'm based in this on what uh, secondhand information, if you will. Um, and, and there, there is there is a difference that at least is being reported, um, and not again anything that I can say based on research. Um, but again, I don't think that things necessarily change so much just because I'm in a different environment, different location. What I'm learning is we as African Americans, um, we have to, um, I think, be good advocates for ourselves and being open and willing to share our experience and, and talk about what is traumatizing for us and when we are um, discriminated against with regards to the, the treatment or the services that we receive. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for conversations like this for just practical down to earth, everyday kind of talk for people to know that you're not alone and, and that there's others who are experiencing this at different levels. And so hopefully that it will encourage us to you know, speak up and speak out. And I, 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 we, we recognize in this one hour, we're not gonna cover everything, right? This might be part one, two, three, four. We're gonna leave it to uh, the leadership of the Alaska Black Caucus. But uh, th th that question, th there's another question and I see this one in the chat that's from Jewel Jones. What resources are available to students who are experiencing mental health issues? Tandra, can you speak to that? So I'm going to speak in general, and I know we're sharing some um, resources specifically for Alaska. So in general, if um, for students, so, you know, if you or yourself are experiencing any um, symptoms or anything that you're concerned about as a student, I would first encourage you to seek out the um, counseling office at, at your institution for resources. That would be the first place um, that I would encourage you to go to, to the, to the counseling office um, to get resources. There also, um, you can also reach out to your primary care physician and let your primary care physician, you know, know that you're struggling, you're having difficulties, um, there may be people within, if you belong to a faith community, the important thing is to let somebody know that you're not okay. Don't be afraid to have the conversation and reach out to other people to let them know that you need help and you need support. Um, there's a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number that you can always call if you're feeling suicidal. There's crisis texts. I know we're gonna have those resources 
available as well as resources very specific to um, individuals who live in Alaska. And on AFSP's website, afsp.org, there are a, a list of resources for people from individuals from diverse communities, including what Ronnie talked about, many resources um, that people are offering that are teleservices and support and information. And so I would encourage you to reach out for help if you are struggling. There are some online, very good online screening tools, you know, that you can take an online screening, you know, just to kind of see how you're doing. So there are lots of resources available to um, all of us if we're struggling. So I would encourage you to make sure that you reach out. Don't be afraid to reach out. Thank you for that. Don Roberts asks, how can people address gaslighting when they experience it? Who would like to take that question? Thank you for that, Don. We, we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the mean actions, as we were calling it, the bullying, misinformation, um, and how to move people past that to be healthy and, and not disparage their own opportunity to be healthy. What are some of the strategies that you as uh, therapists and clinicians have used to, to help your consumers and clientele when they brought this topic to you? Again, for, for the purpose of what we're doing here tonight, Eric, um, I, I don't want to get us off track, but gaslighting is very real. And it comes from you know a place of someone themselves who is the perpetrator, if you will, um, who, or someone who is gaslighting someone else, um, I think that comes from a place of um, someone who may be experiencing some um, mental illness um, themselves. And so again, um, keeping things into context for the person who might be feel like they are experiencing that again, being able to seek some guidance and, and assistance some support um, because it's very real and you know, you're dealing with someone who has some narcissistic tendencies, some controlling type behavior. And so again, one, to make sure that you're getting the help that you need. Um, so definitely can talk maybe offline or if that's something someone is really dealing with and, and need some, some help and some guidance, Eric. Um, so again, just trying to not um, you know, downplay that any or shorten it, but again, that it, it, it's very real and it's happening more and more as we talk about you know, COVID during the pandemic, everybody um, needs to be aware that it, it's bringing out some, some not so good things in some of us, um, as well as some good things. And so as we talked about, you know, the schemes, people being mean or just um, from out of ignorance or lack of understanding um, or people dealing with their own mental um, health, mental illness those kind of issues that things are happening and some of us are falling victim to that. And so again, seeking the help that we need. Just to, just to add on to um, you know, what Ronnie shared, which I think is really um, um, great feedback. One of the things um, just to reiterate is that it is real, gaslighting is real um, and it's traumatic. You know, it, it really, if you've ever experienced it, right, you know the impact that it has. And so in terms of addressing it, um, addressing it with the individual, you know, often does not work, right? Um, and so one of the things that we can do when we experience that 
is to make sure that we have a support system, that we have individuals that we can process that with, um, and so that we're not we're not left with those bad feelings, right? Mm -hmm. That we um, create an opportunity and a community where we have some safety and we have some support um, when we experience these types of um, traumatic events. Because as Ronnie said, ga gaslighting is real and it affects us. It affects our, our mental, mental health well-being and it can be very traumatic um, um, when we experience it. And so it's important to take care of yourself and to, and to call it what it is, to say it, to name it what it is and to know um, that it, it's, it impacts you. Thank you. Have another question. It wants, and first let's, let's, just to be clear, can you define gaslighting for, the, for all of the group and those out there? Yeah, I, I guess one of the, um, a simple explanation of gaslighting is when someone tries to manipulate you psychologically by making, by questioning your, um, what you're saying or your, san or, or your sanity, right? Making you think that what you're saying is not real, right? Um, someone, someone, right. Some, someone, someone who is, you know, um, saying things that are untrue, right? That really keep, they keep saying it and they keep saying it and then they make you question whether you are perceiving things right, you know, so they try to manipulate you psychologically um, where you're now questioning your own sanity. And it can be, it is very harmful and very toxic to people's mental health. And there is a lot of that going along. <laughs> there is a lot of that going on um, in the larger society, especially. It's very pervasive, yes. On the streets, they might call it geeking somebody up, right? Getting them all going. So, so, and it can lead to violence. So, so there's a lot that can end poorly with that. So I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk about not just coping strategies, but even some uh, uh, tools like having your people that you can go to, right? Yeah, and, and can I just say this, Erica's um, um, Tandra nice, nicely said, um, in defining that. And you know, when, when we experience trauma, sometimes it causes us to um, not, not think in a way that we would normally think. So as we talk about this whole gaslighting thing, you know, it, it's very real for some of us to question, okay, am I just, you know, over exaggerating? You know, am I just making this a big deal? You know, is, the, is COVID all of that? You know, well, you know, things are okay. Well, everybody is going through this or, you know, am I, I just, you know, somebody said this to me, it's probably not a big deal or wait a minute, is, is that really a big deal? Um, so again, just know that when we are experiencing um, something as a pandemic, that in itself um, makes us kind of question like, okay, wait a minute, what's really going on here? Am I okay? Is this okay? And then you have someone come along who, take that to the extreme or who tried to manipulate the situation. And right now with COVID, a lot of people um, are taking advantage of the situation, if you will, the pandemic and using it for things that are not good, not healthy or not helpful. Um, and that's because of their experience and their own issues. But again, I think it's just a good reminder 
um, to, to pay attention to yourselves. And again, if you're, if you're concerned, like Tandra said, talk to somebody. Let's take one more question. What would you say, or would you say there's a difference between mental, emotional, and spiritual health? And we, we have three minutes left. Easy answer. Yes, I think there is a difference. No, no. I, I think there is a difference. And, and you know, I, I think it is. And as I mentioned, I think I use the term, we are a whole person. And mm -hmm. that whole makes up a lot of different pieces. And I see that my spiritual health is one piece. My physical health is one piece. My mental health is another piece. And sometimes when one of those is off, it impacts the other. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm not you know, spiritually healthy, I, I feel a little, little emotionally kind of drained or down. When my physical health is not okay, sometimes then I neglect my mental health. And so I think being able to recognize what's different and being able to address them all. And sometimes they do overlap or one thing does impact all of them. Um, but again, that looks different for everybody because what I consider is, you know, for me, my spiritual health is, is my faith and, and my belief. You know, my mental health is more about my emotion and how I'm, my, my feelings. And I try to separate necessarily what I'm feeling from always my, my, my spiritual because sometimes I don't feel what I know I believe. And so I can make that distinction. And then of course my physical health, you know, I think about, okay, why am I having these headaches for, you know, three weeks in a row, something's going on. I need to go get that checked out. Um, oh, that stress, my mental health. So now my mental health is impacting my physical health. So I see them as different and all of them are just important. You know, if I, if I'm diagnosed with cancer over here, I'm gonna go get, take that, get, take care of. If I'm stressed out and overwhelmed by whatever, that's my mental health. I'm going to go get that taken care of. Tandra, do you have any comments? Oh, I 100% agree with Ronnie. I mean, there, there, we are um, very complex. There are um, many dimensions of our, of our well-being, you know, inclusive of our mental, our emotional, our physical, our cognitive, our financial, our relationship. Like, there's so many aspects to our health and well-being, and they're they're different and they're related and they impact one another. So, um, I 100% I agree with with Ronnie and her explanation and great and it was a great real life example that I hope that everybody um, got clarity on. Very well stated. I cannot believe the hour is already up and and I feel like you guys are just getting warmed up, right? Um, if we can, can we post a, a quick visual of the resources? Uh, what we like to do is make sure these are posted on the Alaska Black Caucus website for folks to uh, go and see and use and please share. Um, as always, we have more to discuss on this topic. Stay tuned. Like I said, we knew this might be a part one. Um, and everyone, we will look at any unanswered questions from tonight and do our best to create further moments to address them. Uh, please thank our panelists uh, and our wonderful folks for helping out with the visuals and those who work in research has brought us this conversation and um, made it work. Please be kind and remember, we all may be working on ourselves, be kind to those around you. Teresa will now provide our closing comments. Teresa? Wow, Eric, thank you so much. What a fantastic conversation. Again, thank you all to our program participants 
and of course, you, the virtual audience, for joining us this evening. We also want to thank our Black Caucus members and Allies for Change group for their continuous support. If you would like to join our great organization or link to the Allies for Change group within the Alaska Black Caucus, please visit us at the alaskablackcaucus.com. We would also like to thank the municipality of Anchorage. This program was supported by a grant awarded by the municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this publication, program, and exhibition are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the municipality of Anchorage. Anchorage Health Department. Please be sure to join us next Sunday, October 17th, as our topic will be Remembering Betty Davies. You are all invited. Again, thank you so much. Until next time, good night, everyone. Thank you. Alaska Black Caucus, authentic, bold, committed.